are beginning a six-week series through 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. And 1st and 2nd Thessalonians are two letters in the New Testament that were written by a man named Paul. If you're not familiar with Paul, Paul was actually originally an enemy of the movement, an enemy of Jesus' people. He persecuted the early church. And then Paul had a really dramatic conversion experience, and he became a leader of the early church. And actually, Paul, little trivia, Paul wrote 28% of the New Testament. So over a quarter of the New Testament is attributed to Paul. And Paul began to make these missionary trips. And on these missionary trips, he would travel in the known world, and he would go and he would plant churches, and he would take the gospel where it had never been heard before, places like Philippi and Ephesus and, and Galatia and Corinth. And those, that's really why we have a lot of these letters in the New Testament, because Paul's writing letters to these people that he had helped lead to Jesus and establish a church. In Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas, his travel buddy, are on their second missionary journey. And they come to a place in their journey where they're not sure where to go next. This was before GPS. <laughs> this is before Google Earth. They weren't really sure where to go next. And God was closing some doors for them, and they were a little frustrated. And then one night, God gave Paul a vision. We believe that God can speak to people that way. He gave Paul a vision of a man in Macedonia who was calling to Paul, saying, Come help us. So Paul gets up the next morning, and him and Silas head towards Macedonia. And they stop in Philippi, but they end up in a city called Thessalonica. Now Thessalonica, just to give you some context that's going to help you for the next six weeks, Thessalonica was the capital of Macedonia. It was a free city. It was a large city. It had over 100,000 people. That's a large, large city back then. And it was located on a harbor, and it was also right where all the trade routes came together. So as a result, Thessalonica was one of these cities that was always up on the latest news, the latest philosophies, the latest religions, the latest teachings. This was Thessalonica. And Paul walks into Thessalonica, and this city is a very religiously diverse city. There's, there's all sorts of cults. There's those who worship Egyptian cults. But the, most, the primary religion in Thessalonica at this time was called the imperial cult. When I read that, I thought, That's, that, reminds, that sounds like Star Wars, right? The imperial cult. And what it meant was they worshipped Caesar as king. And there were also quite a few Jewish people that had migrated and now lived in Thessalonica. And so Paul and Silas, they get to Thessalonica, a place where the gospel really hasn't been heard. And they go to the synagogue first. That was sort of what they always did. They brought the gospel to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. They went to the synagogue for three consecutive Sabbaths. And Paul stood up and he taught the gospel of Jesus Christ. And something amazing happened. People put their trust in Jesus. Jews were converted, Gentiles were converted, and things were going well. But then some of the Jewish people in Thessalonica got jealous about Paul and Silas, and they created a mob, and they stirred up the city, and they caused an uproar. And long story short, Paul and Silas had to leave Thessalonica because their lives were in danger. And they had to leave before they wanted to leave. And so Paul leaves feeling like, I wish I could have stayed with them longer. They're so new in the faith, and there's so much I have to teach them. And so Paul gets to Berea and Athens, and he says to Timothy, who's his spiritual son, Timothy, I want you to go back to Thessalonica. Remember where they were trying to kill us? Timothy, you go back, right? That's called delegation, right? That's a leadership lesson. That's delegation. You, Timothy, you go back to the angry people and bring me a report of how things are going. He's concerned. Paul travels on to Corinth, where he spends quite a while there, 
And while he's in Corinth, Timothy comes back to Paul and brings him a report about the church in Thessalonica. And the report is mostly positive, but there are some issues. And so while Paul is in Corinth establishing that work, he writes these two letters. This is what we're going to spend the next, week's, next, two, or next six weeks studying. So let's start right at the beginning, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to read the first 10 verses together this morning. 1 Thessalonians 1 from the ESV says this. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Silvanus is just kind of a more formal way of saying Silas. So this is still the same Silas. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. We're going to come back to that. How did Paul know that God had chosen them? How do we know that God has chosen us? Verse 5. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you, look at what they did, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. When my daughter Caroline was three years old, this is about five years ago, she figured out how to open up the refrigerator. It's always a game changer in a house when your kids figure out how to open things up. And one day she got into the freezer and she treated herself to an ice cream sandwich. And by the time my wife Erin got to her, uh, 50% of the ice cream sandwich was in her belly 25% of it was on her shirt, and 25% of it was on her face. And the wrapper was all around her. And Erin gave her an opportunity to fess up, and she said, Caroline, did you eat an ice cream sandwich? And of course, Caroline said, no, no. <laughs> Despite all the evidence of the crime, she insisted she hadn't done it. There was so much evidence. And this morning, the question we're going to wrestle with is, what is the evidence? What evidence is there? What evidence should there be that you've been chosen by God? Wouldn't you like to know that you have been chosen and loved by God? Well, what's the evidence? And Paul gives us some clues here in this text this morning. We're going to look at two big points and then some sort of sub-points underneath them. But the first big point is this. One of the evidences that you've been chosen by God is how the gospel came to you. How the gospel came to you. Paul said in verse 4 or verse 5, our gospel came to you. And there's two things that we have to know about how the gospel comes to us. Number one is this. The gospel has to come to you externally through the preaching of the word. You have to hear the preaching of 
the gospel. The gospel is the good news about Jesus, and it's, it's found in the scriptures. And that's why we preach and teach the scriptures, because we believe that the gospel truth is found here, and it has the power to change us and to save us. That's why if this is your home church or, or if you come to Trinity, you'll know that every Sunday morning you're going to hear in some form the gospel presented to you because it's the most important thing. You might think, well, if I've heard it once, why do I need to hear it again? Because we forget. Because we forget. Our hearts drift away from the gospel and we go to lesser truths. You know, the gospel means good news. And everybody walks through life looking for good news, right? Right? Everybody's looking for good news. Don't watch the news. There's no good news there. No good news. But, you know, people go to their jobs thinking they get a new job and they're looking for good news, thinking maybe this is the job that will be meaningful and satisfying and, and fill my bank account. People jump from relationship to relationship looking for good news. People go from diet to diet looking for good news. We're always looking for good news. But this good news, this, this gospel is the good news about Jesus, who he is, what he did, and what it means for you and for me. And one of the things that I love the most as a Christian about the gospel is that it's not based on mystical revelation. It's not based on secret knowledge. It's not based on theory. It's not based on philosophy. It's not based on any of those things. You know what the gospel is based on? It's based on eyewitness accounts of a historical event. And Christianity really is unique in that. And that we say the basis of our belief is that something happened in history that was witnessed by people, that was written down, that can be historically verified. And this is what the gospel is built on, historical events with life-changing impact. And the gospel has the power to save. But right from the beginning and still to this day, Paul wrote many of his letters because there were false gospels out there, counterfeit gospels. And the problem with a counterfeit gospel is it creates counterfeit conversions which create counterfeit Christians. People who think that they have been chosen by God and that they're loved by God, but they've responded actually to a false gospel. Let me explain. In 2005, there was a really extensive research project done by some of the top professors of religion at Duke and Notre Dame. And what they did was they surveyed American teenagers who were growing up in Christian churches. And they asked them questions about their belief system, their theology, their doctrine. And the results were shocking because what they realized was that these teenagers who grew up in churches just like Trinity, good Bible-teaching Christian churches, when you actually understood their beliefs, they weren't, most of them were not Christians. And they had to come up with a whole new term to define them. And the term they came up with was, it's a mouthful, you ready? Moralistic, therapeutic, deist. Moralistic, therapeutic, deist. And here's what it means. When they asked Christian teenagers about what they believed about God, they believed moralistically God wants them to behave. That was the number one thing teenagers said. He wants me to be good, to behave, and that's his primary concern. Number two, therapeutic, God wants me to be happy. He kind of wants me to be comfortable. He's kind of that sort of like get-out-of-jail-free card. And then a deist, of course, is somebody who believes in divine beings, but in a very sort of distant way, not in a personal, intimate sort of relationship. Now here's the problem. All three of those are counterfeit gospels and they still exist and they still get preached in the church today. Moralism sounds like this. Hey, work harder. Try harder. Do better. Be a better person. Pray more. Give more. Read your Bible more. Stop saying those words. Stop seeing those movies. And they lead with those sort of things as if somehow our own efforts can save ourselves. 
my own, as if my own righteousness can somehow establish me before God as being accepted and approved of. Whereas the gospel says you're not saved based on what you do, you're saved based on what Christ did in your place. Very different. Substitutionary work of Jesus Christ on your behalf, not your ability to save yourself. And so if you respond to the gospel of moralism, first off, eventually you're going to lose your joy in serving Jesus. Because you're going to get burned out, exhausted. You're going to think, how can I be good? I can't be good. I'm never good enough. And you'll never know if you've done enough. You'll never know if you, did, you read your devotions long enough. You'll never know if you prayed enough. you never know if you gave enough. You'll always be wondering, am I good enough? And the one question that the Christian should never struggle with is, am I good enough? Because it's not your goodness, it's Jesus' goodness. And his goodness is settled, insured, and it's yours if you place your faith and trust in him. Therapeutic gospel is basically God exists for your glory, which is the inverse of the whole theme of scripture, which is we were created to bring glory to God. God wants us to be comfortable, healthy, wealthy, never sick, never suffering. And if you get converted to that gospel, then as soon as life comes your way, and it will, you lose your faith because you think, I thought I was going to get something better out of this deal. And with that mentality, it reveals that you never really served God for him. You served God for you. What can I get out of it? And then deism is this sort of like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check in with God once a week. Sunday mornings, I'll check in with God. I'm going to sort of tip my hat to him. I'm going to play the part. I'm going to play the role. I'm going to have, this is probably the best way to say it, I'm going to have a casual relationship with God. Occasionally I'll. The last thing the, uni, the God of the universe wants with you is a casual relationship, is an occasional relationship. God is after our hearts, an intimate, personal, 24-7 relationship. The only way that we can belong to God is if we've heard the true gospel message. Have you heard it? Can you share it? So the gospel comes to us externally through the preaching of the word. But secondly, the gospel comes to us internally through the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul said, our gospel came to you not just in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. See, here's what Paul is teaching us. Making a decision to follow Jesus or responding to the gospel is much more than a mental, cognitive, willful choice. It's a spiritual, supernatural thing. The Spirit of God has to initiate this work. We can't save ourselves by choosing him. We have to respond to his choosing of us. And it shouldn't just be, I get it, I understand it, I agree with it. At some point, it has to go from external preaching of the word to an internal experience of the power of the Holy Spirit that actually gives you a taste and see that he's good sort of experience. Paul, in Ephesians 3, prays something really strange for the church in Ephesus. He prays this. He says, God, help them to know what they can't know. Well, that seems like a weird prayer. What does he mean? What he means is this. Help them to experience in their hearts what they can't understand with their minds. And there's got to be something about the gospel that we, there's got to be a sense of God's goodness on our hearts that even surpasses our ability to even explain it sometimes to other people. The experience, you know. Uh, you know, those of you that know me, you know that my family, we watch a lot of Food Network. A lot of Food Network. And every now and then I'll be watching little diners, drive-ins, and dives with Guy Fieri, right? And I'm watching him and he gets, you know, he's got, you know, you watch them, you watch the chef make the dish. So you, 
I, I learn a lot. I know what the ingredients are. I know how to cook it. I know how to season it. And then I watch him cram that thing into his big mouth, and I get so angry at my high school guidance counselor because I'm like, where were you when they were giving that job out? You could have told me about that job. And so I'm watching this show, and he's eating it. And, and even though I know how to make it, and I know how they make it, and I know how somebody responds when they eat it, that's the terrible thing about Food Network. You're not actually enjoying it, are you? But then every now and then I get to travel to a place and I get to go to the same place he was at and I get to order what he got and I get to sit down and I get to eat it. And in that moment, I'm moving from knowing to experiencing. And at some point, if the gospel is going to be at work in your life, you have to move from knowing to experiencing. You have to sense the very work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. Now, we need both, right? Because if you just chase experiences, you might get something you don't want. Experience without preaching, the power of the Holy Spirit without the preaching of the Word is sort of a dangerous thing. That could just be an experience that you've made up. But the preaching of the Word, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, will never accomplish what's intended to fully accomplish in our lives. So we need both of those. The gospel comes to us with the Word and the Spirit. So the gospel comes to us. Second big idea this morning, how do you know you've been chosen by God? It's not just how the gospel came to you, it's how the gospel changes you. How the gospel changes you. I'm going to give you three sub-points here. First one is this. If the gospel is changing you, then you've turning or you've turned from wrong hopes. Turn from wrong hopes. In verse 9, Paul said, you've turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And Paul's teaching us something super important about the human heart, and it's this. Paul's teaching us that the human heart always serves something. Nobody goes through life without a master. You're serving something. You might be serving control, respect, pleasure, power, acceptance, approval, but everybody serves something. And Paul's saying one of the true marks of conversion is that your heart turns from serving those things, and by serving them, I mean placing your hope and trust in them and looking to them to bring into your life what only Jesus can bring into your life. Turn from those things to turn to Jesus, to behold Jesus, and as he teaches us in Corinthians, to become like him as we behold him, to be changed into the very image of Jesus because our hearts and our minds are focused fully and solely on him. So we turn from dead, lying gods to what Paul says here, the living and true God. Now one of the things that happens sometimes with people who are new to the faith is what they, they really haven't turned from their old masters to their new master. What they've learned to do, stick with me because this, this might be tricky to understand, but what they've learned to do is they've learned to keep serving the same masters but to but to use that to leverage different behavior. Let me explain. So let's say you come to Christ and your whole life, your, your master has been approval. You'll do anything to get people to like you and accept you. And so it led you to some really bad decisions. You made some really poor decisions. You were caught up in the wrong scene. Then you hear about Jesus and your heart is stirred and your heart is moved and you think, well, this is a whole, be- this, is, this, this looks better. I'm gonna do this. And so now you start living right, you start going to church, but what you still want the most is approval. And now you're hoping people in church notice how good you are, how righteous you are, how faithful you are, how hard you work, how hard you serve. And so from the outside looking in, we're like, oh, praise God, look how different their lives are. But the problem is, is that your heart's still serving the same master. That's what Paul's teaching us here. One of the evidences that gospel has changed you is not just that you live differently, but you're free from other gods. 
You're free from other masters. And listen, the only thing that will set you free, and I use the example of approval, but it could be respect, it could be control, it could be power. You could plug that same idol into that story, and it's true. People look for those things over here. They found it, but it wasn't going well for them, and now they found it in faith and religion, and it's going better for them over here, and they still really don't love Jesus most. They love that thing most. And the only way we get free from it is to see the beauty of Christ and to see that he's so much better, truer, purer, surer than these other things that we put our hope and trust in. Be careful when you turn, not to turn back to yourself thinking, I used to do it bad, now I'm going to do it right. That's trusting in you. Turn from the things that you loved more than Jesus and see the beauty of Christ. And let the very act of worship and adoring Christ have a formative power in your life. At Trinity, our, our mission statement is making disciples for the glory of our God and the good of our community. That's why we exist. Everything we do from Sunday morning services to next steps to grow classes, it's all about making disciples, right? How do we define discipleship? Discipleship, listen, it's moving from unbelief to belief in the gospel in every area of our lives, changing what we love and how we live. And that's how Christians change. First, our heart gets changed. We love things differently. We love Jesus more than the things we used to love. And it ultimately begins to change how we live. We have to turn from the wrong hopes. Secondly, here's how else the gospel changes us. Not only do we turn from the wrong hopes, we learn from the right people. Paul said in verse 6, you became an imitator of us. You imitate us. And elsewhere, Paul says, follow me as I follow Jesus. An imitation is learning to do something that you naturally can't do. So you, you watch somebody. When I, when I was 18 years old, I was asked to be in, my, in a wedding for the first time ever. And we were waiting to get introduced at the reception. And all of a sudden, someone says, hey, the bride and the groom are going to dance together. They're going to do their first dance for about a minute. And then we want the bridal party to go out and join them on the dance floor. A little part inside of me died. <laughs> I was like, What? I never danced on a dance floor in front of people. I didn't know the girl that I was walking with. And I'm like, you could have told me this maybe a day ago, an hour ago. I could have run away or done something or faked sick. And now I'm in line and I got to go out there and I got to dance. And I don't know what I'm doing. So I go out there and the bride and the groom, they dance for a minute. And then the DJ is like, and now we'd like the bridal party to come to the floor. I'm like, I hate you. And I'm walking out to the floor and I, and I, and I didn't look at the girl, poor girl. I didn't look at her once. You know why? Because I was looking at everybody else, because I was trying to imitate what everybody else was doing. I was trying to watch, where do you, where do you put your hands? How do you sway? What do you do? What should, what should be happening right now, right? And so I'm watching other people, so I'm dancing around like this, looking at everybody else, so just trying to imitate what they're doing. Maybe you've had that experience, you got a new job and you watch how other people do it so you can learn, or you go to the gym and you try to figure out how to use those contraptions, and so you let somebody else do it first so you, you, can, you can watch them and learn from them. Here's the thing about imitation. It always feels uncomfortable at first, doesn't it? It never feels natural. It always feels unfamiliar. And most of the time, it's doing something we wouldn't choose for ourselves. And so when Paul says, imitate us, you became imitators of us, here's what Paul's saying. You actually took on some spiritual practices that were uncomfortable for you. You actually lived out your faith in some ways that were unfamiliar to you. But you did it because you were learning, because you were imitating. And here's the question for all of us this morning. When's the last time you did something with your faith that was uncomfortable for you? That felt forced? That didn't feel natural? 
that was unfamiliar, that maybe you wouldn't have chosen for yourself. But, you know, sometimes we have to imitate it first so that we can learn to actually love and appreciate the practice. My, my 11-year-old, Lilia, she plays lacrosse and she plays soccer. And especially with soccer, when she first started, there were a couple practices, a couple games where we were driving home and Lilia was like, Daddy, I don't, wanna, I don't like this anymore. I don't want to play. This is hard. We had a, they had a bad law. She made a mistake. She let in some goals. And our whole philosophy in our house, you do whatever you want in yours, but our whole philosophy in our house is if you commit to something, you got to finish it. Like, you don't have to do soccer next year, but you're going to finish it. Also, we paid for you to do this. So, so, so you're going you're gonna to finish this. So they know that. They know not to beg out of stuff. They're going to finish what they started. And now, yesterday, she had her first indoor game of the year up at Jones Road in Baldensville, and she played amazing. She's become this amazing defender who understands the game, who reads the game, who controls the game. But if she had stopped a long time ago because it was uncomfortable and unfamiliar and she didn't, she never would have, been, now she loves it. So what was uncomfortable for her now is a source of joy. And here's what I want to suggest to you guys this morning. What might seem uncomfortable for you now could eventually become something that gives you so much joy. So much joy. What's the spiritual discipline, spiritual practice? I, I wrote down some, uh, some practical things here. For some of you, today is the deadline to sign up for dinner parties. And for some of you, the idea of signing up to go to a stranger's home and sit with other people that you don't know super well and have food together, it's very uncomfortable. I understand, especially if you're an introvert. It's, it's uncomfortable. But maybe that's the next step for you to take, an uncomfortable step. In such, do that, and you may find, who knows, that you end up in time loving it. Uh, at the end of the service, we're taking a special offering right here. For some of you, it's been uncomfortable to think about setting aside money to give to a church van that some of you will honestly never ride in because you don't make use of that van. You're doing it for somebody else. It's uncomfortable. But sometimes we have to imitate the practices that we're being challenged to do by spiritual leaders so that we can learn the value of them. How about tonight, first Sunday? Some of you, it's not part of your rhythm. I want to encourage you, take that next step. Come out. We're going to hear from a special missionary. I hope tonight's a record attendance for first Sunday, because I want people to hear what's happening in the country of Thailand. For some of you, it's more comfortable to sit at home and watch the second half of whatever game is on TV. And I want to challenge you, maybe tonight's the night to take an uncomfortable step. This past two Tuesday, I was sitting out there in Cafe 633 and had a lovely lunch with our Sunshine Seniors. Some of you qualify to be with them, but nobody wants to take that next step because then you have to admit you're a senior. <laughs> here's, here's the big secret, ready? We all already know. We already know you're, we already know you're a senior because we watch you park your car. No, I'm just kidding. And for some of you, the next uncomfortable step is going to be connecting with Trinity men, Trinity women, Sunshine Seniors. All right, I don't know what it is for you, but I'm pretty sure it's something for everyone, right? So what is that next step? It has to move beyond, it has to move beyond imitation, but often it starts there. Okay, last point this morning. How does the gospel change us? We turn from wrong hopes. We learn from the right people. And then lastly, and this is going to be very quick, we yearn for the better day. Paul said in verse 10, one of the things I love about you guys in Thessalonica is that you're waiting for Jesus from heaven to return. I'm not going to talk about this third point very much because this is the theme of the whole book. We're going to be talking about this a lot in the next few weeks. But the early church lived with this constant expectation that Jesus was coming back. And he wasn't coming back the way he came the first time, like a baby in a manger. Jesus was coming back as a king. And he was going to come back and reign and rule. And that's still central to our beliefs as the people of God, that there's a better day coming. How many of you are excited for that better day? 
We get a glimpse of it in Revelation where, where God says, I'll wipe every tear from your eyes. I'll make everything that's wrong, right? One of my favorite ways to say it is God says, I'll make all the sad things come untrue. All the sad things, all the pain, all the regret, all the sorrow, all the loss, no more sickness, no more cancer, no more death, no more shame. There's a better day coming. And the Bible ends in Revelation with the final verse saying, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Now, if he hasn't come, do you know what that means? There's a work for us to do. So don't sit around doing nothing while you're waiting for him to come. Get to work. There's a work for us to do, and that's what involves taking next steps. But also, in our hearts, we can pray and yearn for the better day. In just a moment, we're going to respond by taking communion together. And one of the things I love about communion is that it's not just looking back to what Jesus did. It's a yearning for a better day because Jesus said, do this until I come. Jason led us in a new song this morning, Yes and Amen. His promises are true. And one of his promises is that he's gone to prepare a place for you. And he's going to come back and he's going to receive us to himself. And Christians who have experienced the gospel know that there's a better day coming. Now let me finish with this and then we'll pray. Here's how knowing that you've been chosen helps you. Okay? Here's how knowing. Three things. Number one, it'll keep you humble. Because the gospel came to you. You didn't go get the gospel. The gospel came to you. So if you understand the gospel, Christians should be the least elite people, or, sorry, the least elitist mindset people in the world. We should not feel like we're superior to people who aren't Christians. We should feel like we're better than other people. We should be so humble and broken that the gospel would come to us. It keeps us humble. Number two, it keeps us secure because the gospel is changing you. It's the gospel's work, and it will not fail its work to change you. God's word will not return void. And number three, it keeps you pure because when you know that you've been chosen, then and only then can you serve God not to get something, but just because of all he's done for you. You're not serving to be loved, but you're serving out of love. And this is how the gospel helps us. And this is how knowing that you've been chosen changes you. Let's pray together this morning.